But yeah, it's interesting. If you find the people that need you, help them, then it kind of just naturally kind of lay, layers up to those people that you actually want to influence. Welcome to How I Fixed It, a podcast where we cut the noise and learn step-by-step strategies entrepreneurs use to grow. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Jesse Meek, the co-founder of Codelingo. Jesse has decades of experience as a developer, experiencing firsthand how difficult it can be to get feedback from others. This authentic experience is why he started Codelingo to solve this problem. Luckily, learning several industry-specific lessons about understanding, helping, and selling to developers. So thank you again for taking the time to join me today. I'm really excited to see what's going on behind the scenes at Codelingo. And before we get started with all the technical details, I'd love to just hear a little bit more of your story and the background as to how you started your company. Yeah, totally. Cheers. Thanks for your time today. Um, so I'm Jess, the founder of Codelingo. Kind of an entrepreneur, it, it found me rather than I found it. So I've, I've been a developer uh, most of my life, all of my professional career, and throughout throughout that time, I always found a tension between managing the complexity of an existing code base and, and a large growing team, and adding new value and features to get out to get get out to to your users. I used to think it was me. I used to think I was a really bad developer. Then I thought it was the team that I was on. I thought I was on a, just a dysfunctional team. Um, then I thought it was the company that I was in. And I now think it's industry wide. I actually think that as an industry, we don't do well when it comes to collaborating between developers. A simple way to put this is we're good at scaling up anything except ourselves. And the kind of the, the core insight that has driven me through this journey is that the thinking around the code is more important than the code. The code at any one point is essentially a snapshot in time of an ongoing process. And it's really that process that's most important. How do the developers actually integrate their thought and integrate their efforts with sometimes hundreds of other, other contributors? Yeah, I find it very cool that you found that problem based on your own career. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Exactly what led you to discover this issue? Um, I used to be um, a developer in, in Can- uh, Canonical, the company behind Ubuntu. But at that time, there was about 30 engineers or so handpicked from around, around the world. Lots of really great people that, that I worked alongside. I had no idea how I ended up on that team, or is it like, like severe imposter syndrome? But um, always, it always struck me like this is we have like the most amazing talent in the world. We've got all of the funding, we've got all of the big, big customers, you know, everything's in our favor. And yet we just kept hitting these very basic issues. And a lot of it was around uh, the collaboration piece, you know, like the, the frustration of these um, collaboration right at the end of the process, like at the pull request process. And sometimes hours or days had already been lost to basic misunderstandings. And we would have these long email threads of just um, debates between different positions in the team and they never kind of came to any real resolution. So that's where it started and actually wrote a, a quick prototype in that company, in that context to say like, hey, um, this might help us a bit with, with these types of problems, but I couldn't get the time or the support to, to, to build it there. But I, I've been bitten by the bug and I realized like, no, this is a really big problem. This is a problem that's followed me my whole career and I can't really turn away from it. And so that's when I looked, um, I took some time off work and I looked to see if I could get some funding to just start, start a company to solve the problem. 
So essentially, I, was, I, I tried to solve this problem inside my normal work, but I, I, I couldn't. So I, I had to form the company to solve this problem. So essentially, I did it for myself uh, initially, and then I realized, like, huh, I'm, I'm not that unique, and I'm really just like every other developer out there in the world, and every team is pretty much like every other team. Mm. And to add a quick definition for non-developers, the pull request is where you've written a small piece of code and you then add it to all the existing code in an application. And I find that really interesting how you essentially took that insider industry secret and now are bringing it to life with all your work. Mm. And now what's really nice is um, the commercial market is starting to catch up and really um, appreciate the, the costs of these types of inefficiencies in teams. So technical debt is is kind of the, the popular term that's really being adopted now. Um, so as developers, we knew, we, we've known and, and grumbled about technical debt for decades, right? But you could never get support from managers or um, any budget to, you know, let's, let's have a month of cleaning up technical debt. They're like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> you've got to keep pushing features. But um, now, for example, like Stripe came up with a report in uh, 2018 that estimates te- technical debt to cost global GDP $3 trillion. Coding Sands comes out with an annual report the last few years running. They found that the leading cause of technical debt to be poor knowledge sharing. The number one self-reported problem of engineers is, uh, is, is knowledge sharing on, on, on teams that's, that's, that's the hardest problem so slowly but surely we're actually starting to see what used to be these kind of tacit painful insights of developers deep in the industry actually starting to surface up and being acknowledged as oh these are having direct economic impacts yeah and to focus now on the solution to this problem i'd love to hear about your product and specifically how you have this core concept called notebooks could you explain what that means to, say, a sixth grader? Mm. Yeah, sure, sure. So sixth grader, if a sixth grader has used Google Docs or Notion, that's where I would start. So that's, that's you open up notebooks and that's what you get. It's literally just a little notebook and you can just use it like a word processing doc. But then similar to Notion, uh, you can add in these blocks which do more powerful things. So right alongside your paragraph, you can have a block which integrates with your code editor and also integrates with your pull request. That's where you start to see new collaboration features open up that just didn't exist before. One of the key features in Notebooks is from your editor, you can just select a bit of code, click a button, capture a snippet, that snippet gets added into your Notebook. Once that snippet's in your notebook, uh, you can move it around just like a paragraph or whatever you like, but you can click on it and it'll go and open up that bit of code in your editor. So it'll find the file online. When you're looking at that snippet in the notebook, so you actually have this little avatar head sitting on top of it so you can see who wrote that code. And then you can just click on that and then you can start a chat with that person. So that whole workflow is something that just hasn't existed before. Yeah, I can see how it's a unique product that opens up this new kind of collaboration, as you called it, a workflow. But to be the devil's advocate, I'm sure most people think, hey, there are a lot of developer tools out there that, you know, help me in some way or another. How do you think your product differentiates from all of those? Mm. What I see with a lot of other dev tool solutions is that they solve individual friction points here and there, and they're quite focused. Whereas Notebooks is a bit more of a kind of a foundational play. Essentially, what we're looking to do is um, disrupt the pull request. 
basically what we're saying is the pull request is the incumbent model that's actually out of date now. If you have a look at the history of like how the pull request really came to be adopted through the industry, because it was, it was GitHub that really pushed it through, you know, the, the open source scene and making it and having pull requests as the primary channel for collaboration makes sense when you have potentially thousands of unknown contributors and your first touch point is like, hey, merge my code. And then you go, oh, you know, I don't know you, I don't trust you, I'm going to look really carefully at this code and give you feedback and teach you about how to work with this code base at that point. That doesn't make sense for um, a high-trust, high-velocity team, you know, in a more corporate situation. And um, a, a lot of the other dev tools out there try to squeeze everything into the editor. And it gets very claustrophobic. You know, they're trying to put all of this context information right in the code. We intentionally want to be next to the code. So we want to bring the conversation closer to the code. But it's important that you have the notebook as a, as a place to really expand the thinking around the code. The, the next important piece about having the notebook separate is that it actually becomes an API to your whole organization. So when I'm pitching notebooks, non-technical managers get it and they say, oh, this is a way that I can actually interact with my dev team. So the notebook at the end of the day, you know, you can just print it out. You can take it into like a C-suite meeting or, or, or what have you, uh, if you, you know, if you wanted to address technical debt issues or, or what have you. Yeah. One thing that I'm curious about here is, you know, theoretically, it definitely makes sense. But on a practical standpoint, you know, some person's going to click on your website and mm -hmm. they don't see like all of the theory here. When mm -hmm. it comes to that micro interaction, would you have any strategies that you use either, you know, digital interaction or like physically pitching to someone in person? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the principles, vision, theory is super important. It, it helps you make those design decisions and, and prioritization and know where you're going. But that's, that's not a marketing tool and that's certainly not how I talk to a customer. And ideally, we, we, we wouldn't need to talk to customers. So what we're aiming for is a product-led growth company where essentially the product speaks for itself. But, but we need... We need an internal framework to get it to that point. So one thing that we do internally is set a goal of 60 seconds to happiness. From coming to the, the website, we want to get a developer to like a, ha, that's cool moment in, in, in 60 seconds. And this is part of what we've really focused on in the past years to unlock value in those first few seconds. We've got two main kind of threads in the company. On the one side, we're working with some large enterprises. That's essentially just to kind of get their logos on the website, get some good testimonials from them. That helps unlock funding rounds and helps just give us a bit of respect. <laughs> go like, well, you know, if such and such are using them, then maybe I'll give it a go and see if it's, you know, um, there must be something in it. I'll, I'll at least give it a go. But what we really want to be focusing on is the funnel. So tofu, mofu, bofu, top of funnel activities, middle funnel, bottom of funnel. So top of funnel activities is, you know, all of that kind of the story around the messaging or that kind of jazz and then when they come in the mofu is it's all about your stickiness and your churn and when you first come in so load it up and use it as, a, as an individual and we have i think it's about 10 getting started steps and each one of and you and it's just a little bar you know, so it's kind of nothing special at all everyone does this it's this basic gamification of you want to complete that bar to 100 it's like okay now i'm on board you've kind of done the, the key features so so that experience we've, we've intentionally focused on 
So really moving away that friction, because even like people in my network, like I remember people that I used to work with and they were super passionate about using this and they wanted to introduce it into their company. And then you go and see how long they actually spent on it. And they spent like maybe a minute, you know, and this was before we kind of got that good onboarding experience on and they kind of, they come in, they spend one or two minutes and then, and then they get distracted and have to go and do something else because we're all over, you know, we're all overwhelmed. So those first few seconds are are very important for, for that initial experience. Yeah, as a developer myself, I can see how having that non-friction way of getting started would be appealing. But what I keep thinking about is, at the end of the day, let's say you're pitching to a buyer at a company. You mentioned earlier how the non-developers still understand what you're going for. Could you tell me any stories or challenges about pitching to non-developers when trying to sell your product? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the main influences in a purchase are your, like your lead engineers and your, like your, your head of engineering. And interestingly, not so much the CTOs. Even the CTOs are a bit too abstracted from the code. So you need these people that are they're in a very particular position where they're they're doing pull requests daily and they're feeling the pain and the frustration, but they have the pressure from people above them going like, oh, hey, look, these are the goals we should be hitting. And so they have this kind of, they have a a broader sense of the outcomes that they're, they're, they're trying to bring about, but then they also have people below them and they just feel that tension, right? So they've got the tension of trying to guide the junior engineers, uh, bring other people together, as well as trying to hit these high-level goals, as well as just having all of this kind of domain knowledge and expertise. And they feel all these different pressures, but they're so time time poor. For example, like uh, the lead of, of, of one, one company said, said that it saves them about four hours a week. And that's huge, right? You know, like if you think about how much um, developers um, at these types of companies are being paid these days, you've more than ROI'd anything that, that, that we charge for that service. But what's interesting is if you go in through that path, they really kind of go like, yep, this makes sense. I want to use this for me and my team. But then it's a very different conversation if you want to get it adopted across the whole company. So some of the companies we're talking with, you know, they're like 3,000 developers in there, but we're talking to like a, a lead engineer and their team might be 25, 50 people. And so they're like, yep, I will, you know, I'll engage with you and we'll look at um, buying a license for 25 to 50 people. But then they get freaked out at the suggestion that you want to kind of get this across the whole company. That, that leads into probably one of the biggest um, challenges I have selling to developers because every developer or most, a lot of developers, I think, secretly want to be a founder and secretly want to do their own tech company, right? And so you turn up and you kind of like, oh, yeah, here I am. I'm the founder of a tech company. And they're like, I could write that in a weekend. <laughs> and then the, the obvious question there is all, yep, but which weekend would you write that in? <laughs> um, the way I approach that is that... Essentially, what we're trying to do is just automate a lot of that boilerplate so you can get on and do the really cool, exciting stuff. So that's that's key. You've got to do that. But then to actually have like the commercial discussion of, you know, how much would you pay, how many seats for the whole organization. And that's a, that's a very different path. So long story short, you, you kind of go to multi-prompt. It's super important to load up the, the discussions with like the commercial people. And so it's important to get in there. Get the, get the teams already using it. So we go through vendor security review and we do trials and we're not that, we're not that uh, hung up if it's a paid trial or not because once you're in 
and if the developers are using it and the developers are getting value, then that's that's an amazing foundation for you to then go and have that um, discussion with the purse string holder because they, they can talk to their internal people and obviously they trust them and go, yep, yeah, this, this, this is how much value is unlocking and, and then you can have that, 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 that separate discussion with the, the commercial people. If I could say that like as an analogy, it's like you have like a beehive and you're like going into individual cells and mm-hmm. once your product's in there, then you can be like, okay, let me now go talk to the queen and see if we can get it everywhere. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, it's actually a, it's a strategy that I've just naturally followed throughout my career. Like I've always had key people in mind that I want to influence. And if I go directly to them, I would fail. But yeah, it's interesting. If you find the people that need you, help them, then it kind of just naturally kind of lay, layers up to those people that you actually want to influence. So ideally, you wouldn't even have to go to the queen of the hive. Ideally, the queen of the hive comes to you and says, there's a group of my worker bees which are just nailing it. My other worker bees over here are really struggling. Can we talk? Because, you know, I think you've, you've really helped a problem we've got here. Can we, can we see how we can actually spread that out? And I think that's what you want to do, right? And it's quite authentic that way. You know, like you're not trying to trick anyone into buying something that's not a value. Like you literally, it's it's value-led sales. You get in there, no cost, zero risk. You do the vendor security review. We we, we take on all of that cost. Just go in and kind of prove the value. And then you want to kind of essentially establish that choir, singing your praises from within the organisation. It's super important that I, I feel authentic and I don't betray my own principles or sense of self because that, that, that's what guides all of my decisions and my path. Not to get too philosophical, but I mean, in essence, I think that's what humanity should always be doing, right? Like we're essentially helping each other solve, the, solve out each other's problems. Yeah, no, it, it's very nice that you have that excitement to still drive you. And I'm sure like this is going to take years out of your life. This moment. Already has, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good that you have that motivation mm. to keep pulling you along. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, what's lovely about that is that the, it's like there's no loss because I'm following my excitement and I'm learning so much through this that even if I didn't achieve the particular goals I set out with, my life has been so enriched because the people you're connecting with, you're connecting with them authentically. Yeah, it's crazy how much you've benefited in your career from following entrepreneurship, especially given you didn't even know that you wanted to do this in the first place. And I think what's super important is that you're sharing the vision. So it's not you. It's not like, it's not like don't expect the world to come and make you a superstar success. Bring a vision to the world that can make us all superstar successes, you know, like, like, like bring your insight into a particular problem that we will have and offer a potential solution and then offer paths where we can all engage with that solution and help bring that solution about together. And then everyone gets excited, you know, the investors get excited because they want to be part of it and they want to help, you know, like I've got, I make these intros and I've got these insights and I've got these ideas, you know, they want to be part of it. And similar to customers, you know, then there's, oh, I've got this other, this, this other company that's really interested let me introduce you to those you know so everyone's starting to bring this solution about together and i think it's super important to have that mindset just to keep your mental health as well because as a founder it's very easy to kind of fall into like a almost megalomanic 
ego where, yes, I'm doing this whole thing, I'm amazing, I'm superhuman, I'm building this whole thing. You're not and you can't. We all, all only have so many hours in the day, so much energy and we all have you know, similar competing priorities. So I think it's very important to have that, that the humbleness and the groundedness to, to realize like this is a group endeavor. Mm. So I guess that humility and authenticity are very important values for you to keep in your work? So for me, I can only do that authentically. I can't fake confidence. Um, when I've tried to do that, I just feel like a charlatan. So ironically, the only way I can really be that type of leader is to be transparently honest um, about the things I'm scared about, the things I'm insecure about, the things I'm thinking about, all of the ways this could could not work or fail. Or, and what's interesting is in doing that, ironically, you're actually talking about like the, the chinks in the armour and, and you're identifying those and you're sharing those with your network and they're giving you suggestions and solutions how to actually strengthen those. So in being as vulnerable and sharing your weaknesses as much as possible, you are actually strengthening yourself uh, in a way that you never could before. If, if you just faked confidence and faked perfection up front, you'd never have the opportunity to truly strengthen your position, your strategy. I think... Um... If I could find one word to describe you, it would just be connected. Feels like that's mm. what your job is, connecting people, not in not just in the startup, but in the way you're describing. I work with the teams and then the investors, and it's just like balancing how I fit all these people together. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually think that's a bit of a like a natural evolution, maybe of my age as well. So I think like when I was younger, I was very much just kind of really just kind of thought about myself. And I think it's particularly a Western culture where we kind of idolize the unique, um, the, these individual people that do these amazing things, whether they're Einstein or uh, Michael Jordan or whoever, you know. And then I had my family, my kids. And now as I'm getting older, that, that circle of concern is starting to, to extend more. So, yeah, there is, there is like a growing connection to the people of the world. And it's a capacity I'm still growing myself. Like with all of the deals, all of, all of the bits I've gotten to today, it's not because of the amazing code we've written. It's people. I definitely agree with like all of these things that you, you've said. And I really believe that what CodeLingo does from a practical standpoint makes sense. And the mm. person that you are and your values, I admire that. So I really appreciated you sharing all of that with me. And if I enter the industry after I'm done university, let's see. If you know, pull request is just this term from the dictionary all that time ago. That'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been fun.